Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. In September of 2020, we interviewed Colin Walsh just after Viral became the first challenger bank to receive a national bank charter. So much has happened in the banking industry and the economy in the past two years, even more so in the past week or so, impacting both traditional and non-traditional financial institutions. After a major funding round last year, Viral made a number of major changes to respond to competitive and marketplace challenges, including a reduction in marketing expense and staff, a refocus on product innovation, and a focus on existing customer engagement. We're revisiting Colin Walsh, founder and CEO of Viral on the Banking Transform podcast. In this episode, Walsh discusses the opportunities and challenges that Viral has faced and provides insight into the future of Viral and other digital banks in a world disrupted by recent events at Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and the economy overall. So welcome back to the show, Colin. You know, it seems like so long ago since you were on the show with the pandemic dominating our collective census well into 2021. And now the economic uncertainty and certainly the recent news around the stability of the banking industry overall becoming growing concerns. So as I said almost three years ago, receiving a charter does not guarantee success, but it does differentiate Varo from formidable competitors such as Chime, Current, SoFi, and other fintech firms in the space. Looking back, was getting a charter the right decision? Uh, well, first off, Jim, great to be back on the show and great to have the opportunity to, to talk with your listeners. Um, so yes, when we rewind back to our conversation two and a half years ago, and we had literally just received our charter. We, we uh, got the final approval in August of 2020, and I believe you and I chatted in September 2020. Yep. And so, so now, as I can look with a little bit of um, hindsight, uh, I would say 100% it was the right thing to do. And if you look at the events that have been unfolding most recently, um, when you think about what matters, whether it doesn't really matter of the wealth or income brackets, uh, what matters is safety and security, and that folks feel that their money is protected. And if I look at our situation right now, uh, in the middle of all of this, you know, the vast majority of our deposits, over 90% of our deposits are sitting at the Federal Reserve. I mean, couldn't, can't really get any safer than that. And we haven't done risky things. We've got a small, very short duration investment portfolio. There's, so there's really no risk in that. Um, and we uh, do not bank ultra high net worth individuals or businesses that could move their money on a tweet. Um, and, and we've been focused uh, for these last two and a half years on designing a product that is meant to help improve the lives of the hardworking American. And right now, they can be assured that their money is safe with VARO. We're a, you know, we're a direct member of the FDIC. We're uh, regulated by the OCC. Uh, and we've taken very prudent decisions and, and built a very effective risk management uh, program to make sure that we protect our customers. So, so if I think about like now being a bank uh, and the things that we can do, and we'll talk a lot more about that and kind of what that journey has been, um, I think it was absolutely the right decision. And I think it's only going to continue to help VARO stand out in, in the crowd uh, over time. You know, obviously the economy has been a challenge to all fintech players and, and banks alike. 
There's also been talk across the fintech space as to the ability to withstand the lack of revenue and funding options, probably more today than even a week ago. These challenges may or may not have been exacerbated by the events around Silicon Valley Bank. What are the implications at Varro Bank and for the broader banking industry based on the Silicon Valley Bank situation? Well, as you and I've talked about before, at the heart of the system is trust. And this ability to feel your money is safe and protected. Um, and, and as we think about uh, how do you generate revenue, how do you manage in a rising rate environment and uncertain economic uh, conditions, I mean, it all boils down to, and, and this has been the heart of our business model from the beginning, is building those trusted primary relationships with consumers so that, you know, and we're dealing with hardworking everyday Americans that are trying to make ends meet. You know, many of our customers would only dream of having more than $250,000 to have in the bank. And, and so, so it is about uh, creating uh, the platform where folks can solve everyday problems. And for us, it's about helping manage cash flow. It's about helping speed up payments. It's around helping build savings. And, and, and in many instances, it's small dollar savings. But just to create that backstop, it's helping to give access to credit and helping build credit. Uh, and all of these are so foundational for consumers that are trying to live a better life. They're trying to climb a very broken wealth ladder and, and see uh, a path towards greater control and stability. And ultimately, wealth creation is what, what we would like to see. So when we, when, we, when we zoom out and look at the macro conditions, so you know those fundamentals, whether you're in a boom time or, or a stressed period of time, um, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's about can you create that trusted relationship? Now, now we're where it does matter is that the, the economic situation changes for institutions. So in a rising rate environment, uh, if you're a non-bank lender, you're going to feel a lot of pressure around funding costs. Um, you're potentially going to start to see a wave of credit exposure, particularly if unemployment starts to tick up, which, you know, thankfully, it's remained fairly resilient uh, through this cycle, but, but we don't know what lies ahead. Uh, and so you're going to see a, a, a number of pressures. Uh, in that regard, um, and and you know, by being a bank, going back to the beginning of this conversation, you know, we are able to grow our lending business in a prudent way, but we're continuing to grow. It grew it over three hundred percent last year with declining losses uh, that can be funded off of sticky, stable deposits that are based on core primary banking relationships. And so, so I think different players are going to make different calculus on, in this changing environment. Now, you saw a couple players now who took some bets uh, that did not play out, where they had excess surged deposits that came in on the back of, you know, IPOs and SPACs and big funding rounds and, and sort of the boom time in tech uh, and made some bets by putting those deposits into long dated uh, securities. And if and investments that that rapidly lost value as as interest rates rose. They were serving segments that uh, could pull their money out quickly in a panic, and they did. Uh, and then we ended up where we are right now. Uh, so I think that you know, for different players in the market, you know, risk management, prudent thinking, long term, kind of understanding the fundamentals of building trusted relationships are, are critically important. You know, it's interesting because we talked about it before we got on the air. You know, this is where. Your history, your legacy of being a banker before being a, a digital banker or a startup really played well because you don't lose sight of what banking's all about. And it helps you in these risky situations to know, geez, 
where could we get into trouble? Where would we maybe overplay our cards? But, you know, since we last talked, Varo has grown exponentially. Now, I believe it's exceeding 7 million accounts. That said, Varo has been challenged by a low average customer deposit level and account activity and an inability to expand relationships into meaningful credit relationships. What is Varo and what are you doing to increase scale and expand relationships so that you really have greater emphasis on the growth of the relationship as opposed to the actually opening up new accounts? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. And I think there's a few things. So one is, I wouldn't let call report data sort of like inform all the thinking because because you know we did, customers use um, digital banking platforms for different use cases and so you do have a number of customers that will open up accounts and they might put you know small dollar savings or they might um, use it to access you know benefits in the marketplace that we have and and so things that but you know the core relationship customer that we have we actually have been growing balances and we've been growing the stickiness of those relationships and that is really our primary focus and I think as you talk about how you know the twists and turns that come in the journey. I think we were playing a little bit of that game of grow at all costs, uh, you know, back in the boom days in sort of 2021, where everybody was uh, seeing this, this massive opportunity. There was a lot of funding in the market. Uh, and then so we started to dial up that growth engine. I think we pretty quickly realized that that was probably not the smartest strategy, particularly as the funding markets were changing, the economic cycle was changing. And so we pulled way back. So we pulled our burn rate way back. We started to focus on what we consider these high intent North Star customers. So these are these everyday consumers that are trying to solve some of these critical pain points that I talked about earlier, whether it's cash flow or it's uh, building credit, building savings, accessing credit, and focusing on a suite of products that could be quite transformational in their lives. And and that and w- while we pulled back on sort of marketing and uh, brand and and you know helping Mark Zuckerberg get richer and Facebook and things like that, like we we really focused on the kind of core core, you know, sort of what was going to matter to our customers and how to reach the most high intent customers. And that has been an incredibly successful strategy for us. So so it's allowed us to uh, greatly improve the unit economics of the business. Um, you know, for those who who diligently follow our, our call reports, you'll see that, you know, as we're getting closer to our path of profitability, um, that I think this is going to be this is going to be a good year for us as long as we stick to our knitting and focus on those core primary relationships and building the products and services that those customers want to to improve their lives. And as I mentioned earlier, we actually have been expanding our lending. Uh, I think, you know, having had many years of experience doing this, you don't want to be sort of an overnight success. I think that hasn't worked out for some others that have gone, you know, full bore into building a, a rapidly building a lending book without fully understanding the customer base and how to underwrite and how to extend credit. And so, you know, we started out with small dollar lending. Uh, we added uh, secured lending. We're expanding limits. And we've got a number of things in our roadmap. But for to build a lending business is a multi-year journey. And you want to do it prudently. And, and for us, and this is, again, a strategic choice that's probably based on a lot of years of experience, You know, we see ourselves as a relationship lender. So as we get to know our customers, we understand their capacity to repay and to handle uh, debt, um, then we can extend more credit to them. But we want to do it in a prudent way so that we don't uh, take... Uh, a lot of that sort of volatility and, and, and credit loss that that can happen, particularly as you're as you're navigating through an uncertain economic cycle, uh, and so we're doing it in a prudent way. But we, but definitely, uh, it's in our plans and, and leveraging our charter 
And it's also part of how how we ultimately get to get to profitability as we continue to expand not just the core customer base, but the products that we can offer them. Well, it's interesting, Colin, because you serve a very unique market that that hadn't been well served by traditional banking. During a, a down or an uncertain economic environment, certainly the access to credit becomes in some ways greater, but also becomes less or more risky. How do you see Viral expanding the credit relationships and how do you currently expand the relationships while still keeping the fraud risk and delinquencies low? Yeah, great question. So, uh, so when you're in an economic cycle like this, particularly uh, that's probably most pronounced by rising inflation. So everything is more expensive. You know, the 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 basket of groceries, the the you know the tank of gas, the your rent. You know, so everything starts to become uh, more stretched, particularly for consumers that that are just trying to make ends meet in the first place. And so, so to your point, um, having products and services that help lower costs. Uh, that help extend the sort of bridge financing to get to that next paycheck. Uh, we also offer, um, you know, a job opportunities in our app so p- folks can supplement their income if they're if they're having some cash flow challenges uh, with a number of job opportunities. So, so there's there's a number of ways in which we are helping to meet the consumer's need during this period of you know probably heightened economic stress uh, for folks that that are trying to that are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, now, how do you do that prudently uh, without taking uh, undue risk and being able to manage, as you say, kind of both the, the credit as well as the fraud risk. Uh, and I think this is, again, built on you know a, a bit of a legacy of experience in terms of how do you get to know these customers? How do you uh, measure uh, the capacity? Because uh, you don't want to extend cost credit to folks that are just not going to have the capacity to repay that. So uh, this is where the relationship-based lending approach is, is very important. And it's also part of how we have successfully been able to contain uh, fraud exposure as well, is by really understanding our customers, but in a digital context. Because in in the uh, old days, you used to be able to look someone across the face because they're sitting in a banking hall and right. you knew where they lived and you knew their children and you knew their families. And, and, and so now we have to do that in a digital context. But uh, fortunately, technology has has given us the tools to uh, be able to really understand someone's identity, understand their situation, understand their cash flows, uh, to be able to make smart decisions that are extraordinarily helpful for the customer, particularly in this in this time of economic stress, uh, but also allows us to uh, to perform well as a financial institution. It's interesting, you know, when we talked three years ago, it, it, and you mentioned it also, that it was really about growing the customer base. It was about trying to see how many new customers you can get. And and we know in the banking industry and in any industry, really, just because you build it doesn't mean people will come. I mean, it's not field of dreams here. So, you know, you recently made some significant cuts in traditional marketing as well as some other modest cuts in your overall staff to to make the the, the model work a little bit better. How will Varo and how is Varo currently supplementing that in maybe the way you're doing marketing, the way you're acquiring customers, the way you're growing customer base to continue to grow? 
There's really a few avenues by which uh, customers discover us and and engage with us and then ultimately make the decision uh, to to make Varo their primary bank. And and so the first is what we call sort of organic acquisition. So this is where uh, folks are just out on the internet. They're looking for banking solutions. They're trying to solve a particular problem. Um, They hear about us um, and they come to our website or they download our app and, and then they ultimately decide to join. And and that's been a a real uh, high growth part of our business is just as we've gained awareness and, and, you know, we've won a number of awards. We've got a 4.9 rating in the Apple App Store. We've got a 4.7 rating in the Google Play Store. We've got one of the highest NPS scores in the industry. So so there's, you know, people find out and and, and then they they tell their friends and and they kind of go through that discovery process. The other is, you know, we do continue to to, uh, do some paid acquisition activity. I mean, much less so than than what we had uh, been doing, kind of in the in the really heightened period of marketing spend. But but we st- we look at the most cost efficient avenues to to acquire high intent customers, and and also we have some very skilled uh, modelers that are helping build tools to to really bring in. Those, those best customers. Uh, we also have a, a pretty robust uh, referral program within our customer base. So our customers are real advocates for the program. It's part of why we, we kind of get some of that recognition from whether it's through NPS or reviews or through uh, just more public recognition. Um, and, and so those programs also uh, create a healthy stream of customer acquisition. And then we have a number of great partners as well, that you know, partners that might be in the kind of perks marketplace within the app, other partners partners that we uh, work with from a content perspective that also just help spread the word. And, and we've got a pretty active social media presence uh, that that helps to um, connect with the customers we're serving and, and sharing customer stories and, and talking about things that are highly relevant uh, to the customers that that that, that we uh, we're trying to do our best to, to help improve their lives and 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 empower them financially. Uh, and, and I think that's been, that's been quite successful for us. You know, it's interesting since COVID, you know, back when we first talked, I should say very few traditional financial institutions had significant digital banking success. Well, that's changed at, at almost every institution as we realize the impact of digital on everybody's life and the, and the way the consumer's reacting to digital engagement. What has been the major impact on your business plan with regard to how the marketplace has responded to what were digital-only banks? Well, I think there's been a real enthusiastic adoption of digital banking solutions, particularly over the last few years, even you know since you and I last spoke. And, and I'd say this has been going on for probably you know, three or four years now, where there's just been a lot more awareness of both, you know, whether it's you know the the digital banking solutions with the incumbents or uh, some of these more pure players like our like ourselves and others, that uh, there's more kind of awareness that you can do all of your banking online and and that you can do it all on your phone and it's with you 24 seven. And I think that that adoption um, has certainly manifest in statistics that you can see across the industry. Um, and and I don't think that's going to change because you have also this generational shift where you've got 
got uh, now, you know, Gen Zs and millennials who were basically born with a phone in their hand. And, and, you know, to them, it would be anathema to drive up and go to a bank branch and, you know, find parking and sit there for an hour filling out forms and say, you you can do all this in minutes on your phone. uh, And then you can have this with you all the time. And so I think there's that generational shift. I think just technology has evolved to provide quality services for consumers. Now, that all being said, I think we go back to the fundamentals of trust. And so one of the dynamics that you do see playing out, particularly, I think, in this sort of neobank space, is that these consumers that are switching and they're they're exploring tend to open up multiple accounts. And so you do see uh, scenarios where there's uh, folks out there that have accounts with a number of the different providers. And then it's ultimately, you know, where do they feel they're getting the best service, they're getting the best value, and they have the highest level of trust that they ultimately decide that they're going to put their direct deposit, they're going to make it their primary banking account. And I think that is where we have a distinct advantage because we are a real bank. (laughs) So we are a nationally regulated bank with FDIC insurance, with our deposits sitting at the Federal Reserve. And so, so like, then it becomes, then it really is like, well, where do I want to take my bet as a consumer? um, I love the fact that I have these options and that there's a number of digital solutions that can meet my needs, but then it ultimately boils down to trust and safety. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. So welcome back to Banking Transform. I am joined today by Colin Walsh, founder and CEO of Varo. We have been discussing Varo's response to the challenging competitive marketplace and the economic forces, as well as the banking forces that are in play today. So Colin, do you foresee the greatest competition going forward, coming from other challenger banks, the big tech providers, or maybe just the everyday traditional banking organizations? And and how do you set yourselves apart in your customer's mind from these organizations? That's a great question, Jim. And so I think if I look at different sort of fields of competition, um, the traditional banks, it was interesting on my um, on my ride in a, a lift down to the office this morning, I heard a uh, commercial from, from one of the big incumbent banks advertising two-day early paycheck. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, you're about five years late to the party on that one. But, but you know, at least I'm glad to see that others are trying to offer customers earlier access to their pay. Uh, but, you know, I do think that the incumbents have made multiple attempts to try to kind of offer some of the services and, um, and create digital standalones. Those have not all been terribly successful. Um, and, and I think there's other sort of more foundational issues that we've talked about in the past in terms of, um, you know, channel conflict, product silos, uh, you know, uh, economic uh, issues around serving um, a mass market customer base. And so so I think that, you know, they're going to continue to try to do this, but it really isn't, you know, the, the mass market sort of everyday hardworking American consumer is not their core 
uh, focus. And so, so, so I think that, you know, while the incumbents, you can't take your eye off them. And now that we are a real bank, you know, I think we're probably more kind of directly competing with a number of them. Um, I, I, I feel like there's still lots of, uh, fairway for, for, for a player like ourselves. I think that the challenger banks, um, are going to be challenged. <laughs> so in this environment, uh, because I do feel like you'd have to have a fairly rich and broad based product offering, um, to make the economics work in the long run. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about lending and kind of the path towards growing a lending book. Uh, I think deposit gathering is also something that requires, you know, skill and attention, um, and what you do with those deposits and that you don't just go put them off in risky assets and other things. And so I think there's a, there's a lot of, uh, things that, are just inherent limitations in the challenger sponsor bank model in terms of what are all the levers that can be pulled. And, and I think with funding more scarce and uh, interest rates certainly creating some challenges for some of the lenders, uh, I, I think that's going to be an interesting uh, space to watch. So, so I, and then you asked about the, the sort of the big tech players. I do think that you have some that are going to continue to look for more embedded finance solutions. Uh, they're going to look at opportunities in payments, they may find some some interesting opportunities in lending, particularly some of the tech players that have large merchant bases. Um, but but I don't know that I. I see the big tech companies ever wanting to become directly regulated banks. Um, so I, so I, it's a space to watch, uh, but I'd rather, I rather I probably see them playing in the periphery and in certain areas uh, where they can monetize and deepen the relationships with their core customer business, uh, core customer segments and core business. Uh, but I don't necessarily see them jumping into the fray. So so when I when I look around and and assess that, I'd say this is a, an amazing opportunity for um, you know players like ourselves uh, if we you, you have to continue to do things the right way um, and focus on. On those core banking relationships and bringing the products that customers want. But I do think the competitive space is uh, evolving and will continue to evolve uh, over these next few years. You know, you have a new unit called Varotech that's really been tasked with executing your overall growth strategy. Uh, could Varo use this technology platform to become a provider of technology to the traditional banking industry? Yeah. I wouldn't rule it out, but it's not a strategy for us right now. I mean, it's been hugely successful for us in terms of the pace at which we've been able to uh, bring new features, new design systems, um, more sophisticated modeling techniques into Varro. Uh, so if you just look back over the last six months, I mean, we revamped our savings proposition. We opened up Zelle, which has been hugely popular to our customers. We've increased our lending limits. We've launched a new design system. We're about to launch a new website. Like all of these things are enabled through the kind of integration of these functions in this Varro tech, which is more of an operating unit that, that is uh, trying to create much more cross-functional, high collaboration, uh, operating much more like a tech company. Um, and, and that, so now could we then say, uh, is there a way to, to sort of make some of this available to others. Um, I don't see it as a, something that we would pursue in the near term, you know, possibly someday there, there could be some value there, but we've got so much runway right now, just doing what we're doing with the, the massive uh, TAM of consumers that we can potentially serve that I think it would be uh, in my, my view, at least uh, not the best uh, uh, way to you know, direct our energy and attention. 
you know, we, we talk about all this strategy and, and the fluidness of the marketplace, even as I mentioned in the last few days. Do you see a scenario where Viral could be acquired as a digital banking unit of a traditional banking organization or another fintech firm? And or alternatively, could Viral actually be in a buyer's position like a fear of her fintech competitors have done? It's a great question. Um, so first of all, I, I, the former, I, I don't have a lot of appetite for. The latter, you know, could we be more of a consolidator at some point? You know, I think for right now, we're very focused on, you know, kind of getting to profitability, continuing to scale with the core segments that we serve, you know, delivering uh, real innovation and and product uh, features and products that, that, that materially move the needle for our customers. Um, and, and I think that's our, that's our our prime focus, uh, but you know, at some point, could there be an opportunity to um, you know embrace partnerships or or start to um, think about consolidation opportunities? You know, I, I, that that to me feels m- more like um, yep. something that that would be of interest. And and you know, but I do feel like we've got some um, you know some some road to <laughs> so, so what's the what's the right expressions? Uh, there's there's road to hoe in yeah. front of us uh, over certainly as we're getting through this uh, economic cycle. What has been interesting um, from an observer's point of view in, in the last five to seven years is that so many companies came into the, the space, in the banking space, in one way or the other, in a specialized and non-specialized basis, some looking more like traditional banks, others looking like specialty providers. But, you know, to say the least, banking's a tough industry. Uh, you know, you, we don't have to go very far to see organizations that have thought that they could put this together. Some are very big players, such as, you know, Marcus, that that all of a sudden realize it's just not playing out the way we envisioned. What major trends do you see that may positively or negatively impact Varo in the, in the near to medium term future? Well, some of the things that we've been talking about, like right now, um, you know, the rising rate environment um, is actually helpful for us in the sense that, you know, we we have a lot of our money sitting at the Fed, you know, and now it's earning a spread and, and you know, so it's generating a source of income. It's also very safe. Uh, and and so I think that that is certainly one area. I think that um, our ability to leverage those deposits to expand lending in a prudent way uh, is also an advantage when others are going to be struggling to, um, to to be able to extend their lending program. So I think those are those are some of the the positives. I'd say that, you know, we on the on the kind of headwind side, um, you know, there are there are changes that are occurring, you know, in terms of the funding environment. You know, we're fortunate to have, you know, great backers who who have huge conviction on on our business and they see the the promising future ahead. Um, so I think that um, is something that, you know, will will certainly impact everyone. But, you know, we we have to make prudent um, decisions and choices and trade-offs. And, you know, as you you know, brought up earlier, like, would we want to go out and, you know, go, we're not going to go on a big buying spree <laughs> because I think there's right. just... You know, there's going to be capital constraints that we just have to be pragmatic about, um, and and I do think the broader, more existential piece that that we have to be very mindful of is just the the trust in the system. And I feel like the the system worked as designed when um, when these players uh, started to come under intense pressure, and the FDIC stepped in, um, and then the Fed and the Treasury, you know, were were decisive and acted quickly to bring stability to the system. And 
I think that was incredibly helpful and, and kind of things worked as designed. Uh, but I do feel that, you know, that is something that has you know, caused uh, consumers to, and, and businesses and others to, to sort of like pay attention. And I think that now it's, it's really up to players like ourselves to continue to demonstrate uh, that we have, you know, that the effective risk management, we've got the right products, we're creating the value, we're making the right decisions on behalf of our consumers to protect their money. And, and I think everyone, every participant in the system has to be thinking very deeply about, you know, how they continue to earn and, and sustain that trust, uh, because that's what this banking system is all about. And it is hard. And I think many have learned that you can't just sort of do this. It's, you can't be fly by night. You can't just sort of wing it. I mean, this is requires a lot of very careful, thoughtful decision-making every day that, that you can demonstrate to your consumers and, or whoever your customer segments are that, that they can trust to, uh, that you're going to protect their money. So in a kind of a broad sense, you know, one thing that, that I believe I've seen in the last week, and I mentioned this on a, a BBC interview I did over the weekend, is that you know, does this really more than just the impact on a singular unit or um, the 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 tech community overall? Will this impact, in one way or the other, the appetite for investment in fintech and tech firms, at least in the near term, based on what has happened in in a reevaluation of the risk involved in financing the financial services community? Well, I think that there will always be money available for good players. So with sound business models that, you know, maybe they're, you know, either they are generating strong returns or they have a clear path to generate strong returns. They're serving large segments of the, of, of the, of the market um, and have the potential to serve uh, large segments. So I do think that there, there will be funding available. However, I think that investors are going to be far more discerning uh, about where they put, place their bets and where they put their capital. And so they will want to see the evidence of, of traction. Uh, they'll want to see uh, sustainability. Uh, so it's a little less around, can you create a, you know, a, a whizzy new idea that's going to attract a bunch of low engagement customers? I mean, those days are over. And so businesses that that thought that they could um, show a bunch of vanity metrics and, and attract a lot of funding are going to struggle for sure. And I think that that is part of the reevaluation that's happening, um, you know, in the investment community right now. So two more questions. The first of which is over the last two years since we last talked, what surprised you the most in a positive sense and what surprised you the most in a, in somewhat of a negative sense with regard to building viral? Yeah, I would say the, one of the, most rewarding and um, pleasing aspects of this journey has been um, the the people inside of Varro and and the resilience and the commitment to building something that has an that that has the potential to impact millions of people's lives in a profoundly positive way in terms of trying to climb a broken wealth ladder, create more wealth equity in this country, building a platform that has all the foundational elements to help consumers achieve more more resiliency. And these are big, big societal issues that we're solving. And the and the the grit and tenacity and uh, excitement and curiosity by which this team has embraced that challenge has been um, incredibly rewarding. And so I would say that has been um, 
you know, certainly very exciting for me as a leader to um, see that culture. And, you know, and then also the, you know, we stamp our whole mission is about expanding inclusivity and opportunity. And even inside our company, you know, we have seven employee resource groups for a small company, you know, that, you know, we, we celebrate the diversity of our employee base. You know, we had a, we had a Diwali celebration in the office back in November, you know, something we used to do before COVID and like things that just, there's a, there's a real sense of belonging longing and that we're all trying to solve some very big problems. And so, so I think that, um, you know, that has been, that has been wonderful. I'd say some of the harder things, you know, and again, it's always gut-wrenching as a founder uh, to have to let people go like last year when we had to do that. And, you know, having to, you know, I think we're, we're, quite a pragmatic group in terms of, you know, fairly seasoned. We've been, we've been through multiple cycles and you sort of see like, okay, well maybe we scale too fast and, and now we have to pull back and we have to take sort of a longer term view. Um, and, and I think that the decision-making process was probably less challenging. It's just the, then having to go make all those changes and, and, and make them quickly. I mean, we, we kind of pivoted on a dime when you think about like we were, you know, full steam ahead one minute and the next minute we're like, okay, marketing is down 80%, you know, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take the steps we have to take, um, and being able to have the flexibility that the business model afforded us to do that. Cause I mean, I think back to my days of some of the other institutions that I'd worked at, it would be very, very difficult to introduce so much change into the business so quickly. Uh, but, but we did that, you know, but it's hard and, and that, you know, and that's always has, uh, you know, it, it takes a toll as you're, as you're sort of moving through these different cycles, but it's part of um, a part of how you win in the long run is you you sort of adapt to your reality. Colin, it's interesting. Um, I remember our first conversation vividly. Your energy and enthusiasm when we first talked was really your calling card and actually made the interview so popular on our platform. In fact, it's still getting a lot of listens every week. The video also has in it, and it and it's interesting to see how given all the change, all the things you had to do that were difficult, but also, as you mentioned, your, your employee relationships and, and your vision, um, it is still shows through. And um, as I mentioned before our podcast, when I do my presentations internationally, I refer to you as being, you know, one of these traditional bankers that decided to, to branch out into something new. And that if you don't have leadership that provides the vision the enthusiasm, the, the, the experience of what banking really is, you'll be lost. And I think it really, again, sets you apart and your organization apart from a lot of traditional financial institutions as well as fintech firms that may have not had all the experience they needed during the toughest times. I really appreciate your time again today. I know it's a very busy time for everybody. And, uh, you know, maybe something's happened since our podcast when when uh, we did the recording Let's here. But <laughs> yeah, 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 I definitely hope not. Or maybe something positive. Um, but it's a challenging time, and I, I think again, your your positive attitude is really a, a big asset for an organization that's still very much in the growth mode. So thank you again for being on the show. Thanks so much, Jim. It's been great uh, chatting with you, and look forward to, to to more of these conversations. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. We appreciate your support and hope you can find time to show some love in the form of a positive review. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research in the digital bank report. 
This has been the production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Haslidge, audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman, and video producer, Will Prince. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Remember, challenges are always part of the future. The key is to prepare for what may be ahead and view challenges as opportunities for learning and growth. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.